Um, no, I'm sure I'll hear about that after the service. Let's turn now to the reading of God's Word as found in the book of Acts, chapter 28, as we move on with our service to uh, the reading and the preaching of God's Word. The book of Acts, chapter 28, verses 17 to 31. Oh, also, just by way of introduction, I, I did want to lay out a little bit of where are we going here. Um, and as I tried to wrestle with that as far as putting together series and those kinds of things and trying to figure out when, do you, when does that start for you all? Because where, I'm, where I came from, church school's already starting and people are already home uh, from their vacations and whatever they were doing over the summer. Um, but here, everything starts after Labor Day, which I'm really excited about. So these next three weeks are really going to be sermons that I hope uh, share my heart uh, and what I uh, want for our church, what I want for our people, and what I want for anybody that might come through these doors. And you might think of it as sermons that help you understand and get to know me a little bit. And then after Labor Day, or I guess, I guess Labor Day weekend, we'll begin uh, a series in, in the book of John where we'll be looking specifically at conversations with Jesus and John that we only find in the book of John, and then ending with the I am statements of John that are unique to John as well. So that's where we're going for this fall, and I just wanted to lay that out ahead of time. There aren't these random sermons that I'm putting together. I do have some intention behind them, and so for the next three weeks, again, we'll have uh, uh, those, those sermons will be more geared towards um, just the things that I aspire for, our, for this place and for people in this community and, and, and really getting to know me, and then we'll move into our... Um, series in, in John, uh, Labor Day weekend, okay? Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word as found in the book of Acts. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and he being, being Paul here. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of, the, of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah, the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For his people's heart has grown, grown dull, and with their ears they barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. 
Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Verse 30, he being Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word, and we pray now that you would open our eyes and ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not, and that through that, that our hearts, like good soil, would receive your word and produce a fruit, that we may leave here changed people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to try to answer the question, what does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to be the people of God? And I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this question. Perhaps you've asked yourself maybe a similar question, which is, what does it mean to be a Christian? Right? What does it mean to be a Christian? And we might answer that as well. To be a Christian, you've got to um, accept Jesus as your Savior, and that would be true. You've got to acknowledge your sin, which you do, that you are in need of a Savior. That's what it means to be a Christian. And then we might say some things like, well, then you pray a little bit and uh, go to church every once in a while. Like, that's what it means to be a Christian. Of course, it's more than that. But this is how you or others might answer that question. And, but what does it mean then to be the people of God? Because that's asking something different. That's asking something different. It's something that's more corporate, if you will almost an after-you-believe-and-become-a-Christian type of question. I ask myself this question a lot as a pastor, and what does it mean to be the people of God? And I'm sure I have as much confusion at times about what this is supposed to look like, what this means, as perhaps maybe you do at different times in your life. And as a Christian in today's world, right, when everything around us is telling us to be something unique, telling us to be something different, telling us to be something true to ourselves. What does it mean then to be the people of God? What does it mean then to, to take, if you take the motto that we hear today so many times, you be you, um, what, which is really the focus of what many people uh, in, in our day and age, that's the, that's the focus. That's, what is, that's where life is found. What it means to be the people of God might be to say, what does it mean for we to be we? And that's really what I want us to ask and answer this morning. In a world telling us to be 10,000 things, what does the Bible ask of us? What does it mean to be the people of God? And for our time this morning, when you think of the people of God, I want you to think of one thing. I want you to think of the church. I want you to think of the church for now. And as we ask that question this morning, what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be the church, there are two points that will guide us in answering that uh, question that we see from this passage about the church. And that is one, Jesus must be at the center of the church in all that we do. Jesus must be at the center of the church in all that we do. But second, Jesus must be at the center of the church in all that we are. So I want to take those two things with our time this morning, uh, that Jesus must be at the center of the church in all that we do, and that Jesus must be at the center of the church in all that we are, so that we might be the people of God. Let's take that first one in that order. 
Jesus must be at the center of the church in all that we do. Um, as you noted, this is the end of Acts. And about two-thirds, whether you studied Acts or not, um, it's, it's, it's mainly about two things. It's about uh, the giving of the Holy Spirit in, at Pentecost in chapter 2, and then with the Holy Spirit, right, the building and the establishing of God's church. And so we get to the end here, uh, but two-thirds of this book actually chronicles the work of the Apostle Paul. And we hear of his conversion in chapter 9, and then about chapter 13, uh, and on to the rest of the end of Acts, which is authored by Luke. We follow three of these missionary journeys uh, from Paul to set up churches as an apostle, apostle throughout the world. Uh, to go to the Gentiles, which a Gentile is just anybody who at this point is not ethnically Jewish, and to share the Gospels. And all throughout, as you, crawl, as you read through Acts from chapter 13 to 14 and on to the end that we read today, Paul is trying to get to Rome. And as a reader caught up in the story, you're, just, you're turning that page, like, is he going to get there? Is he going to get there? And here he is finally in Rome, and his intention there then is to meet with the emperor, for, with, with Caesar, to go before the highest court in the land, to be like going before the Supreme Court here, not to be declared innocent, though. He's already been declared innocent. He's using his citizenship as a Roman citizen to go before the highest court in order to what? Share the gospel. In order to testify about Christ. It's pretty remarkable. But as we get to the end of this chapter, we find out that as Paul sort of finally made it to Rome, he hasn't made it there in a way that maybe he had expected and perhaps maybe that we had expected because Paul is in chains. He's a prisoner. And as we get into this, we see that at the end of chapter 28, things are not shaping up perhaps the way that Paul thought they would, but maybe as the reader yourself as we might think that they would. This is an apostle here, right? And so there are two things, there are a lot of things in this text, but there's two things I want to highlight by way of this first point, and that is, by human standards, this book, the book of Acts, right, it does not end on a high note. It does not end on a high note by any means if you're Paul or anybody. As I said, Paul is a prisoner, and he is chained uh, to a Roman guard here. And while Paul is giving some freedoms and opportunities to teach, as we saw, he's not seeing everyone converted. He's not seeing all of these wonderful uh, ministry gifts come to fruition and work to uh, the way that he would want them to work. We might call it ministry success. As a matter of fact, what we read in verse 24 um, is that there are people who are not believing that Luke chooses to share, but also that there's major division and there's disagreement among the Jews in the area coming to hear him. It is a comfort to pastors like myself and pastors alike, I will say, to read and see that even the Apostle Paul did not have success, as it were, in every evangelistic endeavor. And maybe you find comfort in that this morning. But why record this? Why record this? I mean, if you're starting a new business, are you going to volunteer to record all the bad things that are happening? All to say, the book doesn't seem to end on a high note for the apostle. The second thing I want to highlight with regards to this first point is Luke ends his account without telling us what happened to Paul. And I'm just going to be honest, in, in my study of Acts, reading through, I got caught up in the story. And I'm getting to the end, and I'm just, I'm waiting for this trial. I'm waiting for him to get there. And all of a sudden, as you just heard, Luke decides to end this thing with, he preached the kingdom of God, and 
boldness and no, without hindrance. The end. What? What about the trial? And what about the rest of Paul's life? What about any of the other things that he wanted to go do? I think he wanted to go to Spain. Why don't we hear about that? Uh, and most of the time, you, you, you expect to hear about his death. Where's that? What happened to Paul? Why is Luke leaving us hanging here? Well, the short answer to that is this, and you might already be thinking it. It's not about Paul. It's not about Paul. This story is not about Paul. It's not about his ministry success or lack thereof. It's not about his uh, desire to, to make it to wherever it is he wanted to make it. It's not about his life. You might say that Paul matters, but he's not the point. We could put our own name in there. What is the point? It's Jesus. That's why we don't get that. The point of this story is not about Paul. It is about Christ and the power of his death, the power of his resurrection, and the power of his ascension and reigning over all things as the church goes forward and is established. In other words, Jesus is what is central here for Luke and what also lies at the center of Paul's life and everything that he did. This being the end then of Luke's account or story and acts is not the end of God's story with his church. What Luke records here as to what Paul teaches is not meant to be a tangent or some unnecessary detail, as we'll see, but instead is meant to be the message itself. It is meant to be the primary message of the church until Christ returns, and that message, message is Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus and his kingdom. Verse 23, if you look at it with me, the middle of 23 says, from morning till even, evening, he expounded to them, what? Testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now, at this point, if, you, if you're familiar with Luke, you might recognize his part one, the gospel of Luke, ending in a very similar way where Jesus was, what, resurrected, walking with those folks on the, on the road to Emmaus, and he's telling them, all about himself by what? Appealing to the Old Testament scriptures. Paul's doing the same here. And Luke will end this book, part two, if you will, the book of Acts, in verse 30, 31, saying, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Again, Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus and his kingdom. And while Luke is certainly being descriptive here for us, this text is also prescriptive for the church and for Christians. That Jesus is the focus or the center, if you will, of what the church is about and thus the center of everything we do. I'm sure you've had the privilege of being on the soccer field to watch five and six-year-olds play soccer. If you haven't, you're not living, go find a soccer field that has this it's amazing. This past spring, Bess, our six-year-old, um, she started playing soccer, and she loved it, and it was great, and I got to get in there and referee a couple times, which was also interesting. But if you've ever watched six-year-olds play soccer, like, you'll know that this isn't necessarily the best representation of soccer out there. As a matter of fact, right, as you watch them play soccer, what, it, what happens is that basically wherever the ball goes, apart from that one child picking flowers, you know, not even paying attention, which sometimes was my child. 
Um, they're just hovered around that ball. It's as if uh, somebody described it as sort of somebody rolling a beehive down the field, the hive being the ball and then the bees being the players. They just, that's just where they go. This is what they do, right? There's no sense of spacing, no sense of positions, no passing. It simply wears the ball and everyone follows it around. Well, six-year-old Soccer team might not be the best picture, as I said, of soccer in the world, but it's a great picture of what it means to have Jesus at the center of all that we do. To have him as our gaze, as our focus. And this is what must be true for the church as well. Jesus is the focus of our worship on Sunday morning. Jesus is the foundation for our fellowship with one another. And what we see happening in Acts as the church is established is that these early Christians, for these early Christians, Jesus was the focal point of their attention, of what their hearts were most captivated by. And the same must be true for us today. Try to get six-year-olds to space out on a soccer field. They can't. And there's something beautiful, though, about that when we think about it in terms of Jesus and the church. Try to get the church right, to space out onto something else other than Jesus. Right? You get the illustration. What Luke is leaving us with in Acts is the message of the New Testament, right? We do not proclaim ourselves, as Paul will say, we proclaim Christ crucified. In other words, Christ is at the center of all that we do which means that he is the only good king worth centering your life around. And part of what it means, part of what that means, is that the church practices then the ongoing mission of reminding one another of that true king, but also, also removing the bad kings that we put at the center of our lives through repentance. So that the love of Christ might compel us at all times and in everything that we do. Look, it's not lost on me to look back at this last chapter uh, and see that Paul, in fact, goes to Rome preaching about Jesus and his kingdom. To me, there's some irony here. How can you go to Rome, right, the most advanced and largest kingdom in the world, preaching a different kingdom and a different king? How do you do that? But this is the message of the gospel, that Jesus has come not just to offer salvation, but to free us all of the bad kings that we would center our lives around. And that's the work of the church, the work of Christians in the church, to proclaim the message that Jesus has died so that all the bad kings that we put at the center of our lives, that rule us from time to time, good things, could be money, could be power, could be beauty, whatever it is, that they wouldn't rule us anymore. Jesus is the only one who has earned that right to be at the center of our lives because he is the only one who has purchased us with his own blood. This is my first point, a little bit lengthy, that Jesus must be at the center of the church and all that we do. He must be our foundation. He is what this story is about. But not just the center of all that we do, but the center of all that we are. And this gets to my final point, second point. To say that Christ must be at the center of all that we do is one thing, but to say that he must be at the center of all that we are and, all, and who we are, well, that's a different thing. That's another thing altogether because that requires an identity shift. 
And this implies belonging to his kingdom, the kingdom that has already dawned by his resurrection. It's one thing to proclaim the king and receive him. It's another to receive his kingdom, to live in it, to live under its rule. You might be familiar with the phrase, uh, you can't have the king without the kingdom. What's attractive today, though, is wanting or desiring the kingdom and all of its benefits without Jesus the king. But the church must have both. And we see this in this text. Why did a disagreement arise here? Let's look back at verse 25. It says, They departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And he continues there, quoting Isaiah, and then finally in 28, therefore let it be known that, to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. See, this is more than just people uh, rejecting Paul's preaching about Jesus. This is a rejection of what it ultimately means to accept Jesus and his kingdom. Why? Because Jesus' kingdom, as Acts shows us throughout the book, among other things, is for Gentiles or non-ethnic Jewish people as well. And there were many who didn't want to accept that, as we see in this text. They did not want to accept that type of kingdom, and to do so is to adopt or to take on what a completely new identity. It is to say that all that I identify as, my culture, whatever it is, all those things that I build my life around, what I put at the center or the foundation of my life, I surrender those things. Not like they don't exist anymore by any means, but they're not priority. Being and understanding who we are as a member of, the, uh, of, of, of God's kingdom does take priority. And it is surrendering of these other kingdoms that we build and center our lives around uh, in order to be under Jesus and his kingdom. A kingdom that once was, as we enter pages of scripture from the Old to the New Testament, a kingdom that once was defined by being Jewish, but is now defined by what? Being united to Christ by faith alone. Amen to that. A kingdom that was once defined culturally by a certain language, a diet, sacrificial system, and even a geographic space, as we read about in the Old Testament, but is now defined culturally by every tongue, nation, and tribe as one church. The disagreement that Luke is showing us is a refusal to lay down, in this case, a Jewish identity and take up a new identity in Christ, thus embracing the king and his kingdom on his terms. Now, we struggle with this very thing today. We have our own kingdoms that we want to center our lives around. And we have our own identity and culture that we'd rather be, have, be primary than to be uh, and see ourselves first and foremost as the people of God. We struggle with this still. Growing up in a small town in East Tennessee, Dayton, Tennessee, um, our town had three elementary schools in the entire county. Like that was it, okay? And some of you all can relate to that maybe. Uh, but but we, had, we had three elementary schools. We had the uh, Spring City Bulldogs. Uh, we had the Ray Central Yellow Jackets. And we had the Dayton City Sweatbees, which I was a Sweatbee. And uh, hold on to that. I have the pendant still. Um, it's good to be a sweat bee. 
Once you graduated, though, from that elementary school, which went to eighth grade, there was one high school in the entire county, and that was Ray County High School. And if you go to Ray County High School, you're a Ray County Eagle. You're a Golden Eagle at that point. And so, but as you might imagine, right, merging those three identities into one unifying identity was a challenge. And many wanted to remain Bulldogs. I know I wanted to remain a Sweat Bee. Um, when in fact, I walked the halls of a different place. And this showed up the most on that freshman football team when all of these uh, kids who used to play against each other in elementary school were now on the same team and forced to play together. In fact, there was a certain coach who was famous for his speech after uh, tryouts in the first uh, practice of the new team, and he would get the group together and he'd say something, and I won't do my Southern draw just yet. We're just getting to know each other, so I'll put that on a pause. But he would say, if you're going to be on this team, that means one thing. You're Golden Eagles now. He'd look everybody in the eye and said, there are no more sweat bees. There are no more yellow jackets and there are no more bulldogs. You're golden eagles now, right? And you're, you're already getting pumped up. Yeah, we're golden eagles now, right? You can feel, feel it in the room. What is that? What is that? It's identity. That's kingdom language. You wear the team colors now. You say the team cheers and you adopt the team values, etc. Regardless of how much you love your previous team colors, cheers, and... Um, Values. It's identity. It's kingdom language. This is how Luke is ending Acts. It's the final word for the church moving forward. Christ is not just at the center of all that we do, but must be at the center of all that we are because we are what? New creations in him. Where the Old Testament anticipates the king, the New Testament here then says that what? The king has arrived. He is here. And Acts gives us, in real time almost, as you read through it, the progression and the application of Jesus' reigning and the establishment of his church, which is what Acts is about, and the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ to the present and until he returns. So how appropriate then for Luke to end on the proclamation of the kingdom of God, since the king, who has resurrected and ascended, has come and now reigns. Therefore, Luke points, uh, Luke's point in the ending here, and ending Acts in this way, is to say, yes, uh, my story is coming to an end. Paul's story is coming to an end. Even our stories in this room will come to an end at some point. But God's story of his kingdom and his people, that, friends, is just getting started. But actually, better than that, it's a story that will have no end. And so, with that, what might it look like then for the church for Christians alike, to have Jesus at the center of all that we do and all that we are. And if I could come back to that first question, what would it look like, what, what does it look like for us to be the people of God? If this is our, our mission. And I want to offer these three things by way of application this morning before we close. The first is what it means to be the people of God is that we are people who rest. We are, are, are a people who rest. Rest is another word for worship. That is, we worship what, what or where our hearts find ultimate rest. By rest, I don't mean we get good sleep in those places, which might be very true over the past few minutes of the sermon. What I do mean is that by rest, it is the place where we find or we think we find security, comfort, love, identity, value, worth, all of those things that we are to find in God himself. And it can be in a thousand different places. 
Right? It can be in money and power and control, as we said earlier. It can be in beauty, either in your own or in somebody else's, that that is where you find rest. It could be in our education. It can be in the food that we eat and the drink that we drink. It can be in anything. And to find rest there then is to give ourselves to that thing, which is to say, this is where I find ultimate rest. And that, friends, is worship. It's worship. The Bible calls this idolatry. To find rest in anything but God is that. But the problem, and you know this, our hearts, right? Our hearts were made for that. Our hearts were made to give themselves to something in a way that cries out, yes, this is it. Where the Bible directs us as his people is to do that and to find that in one place, and that is in Jesus Christ alone. And as Augustine says, you, God, have made us for yourself. And our hearts are what? Restless until they find rest in you. As we read earlier, what is it that Jesus says in Matthew 11? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you an easy life. I will give you everything you wish. He says, I will give you rest. Rest. True rest is only found in him, and our hearts are made for this. I'm looking for it. You're looking for it. The world is looking for it. And so worship on Sunday morning should then be the place Christians do and can find rest for their souls because they are what? Meeting Jesus in this place. And the more we learn to rest as his people in him, the more he is at the center of all that we do and all that we are. The more we learn to do that as a people, the more we long to empty our lives of bad kings that we think will give us the rest they promise but can never, ever deliver. See, the opposite of rest in this world, and you know this, is anxiety, it's division, it's turmoil. And I think it's safe to say that there's plenty of that in the world today. There are a lot of bad kings in this world today that we center our lives around. These bad kings that create anxiety, division, and turmoil. Money, friends, is a bad king. Sports is a bad king. Food is a bad king. Politics is a bad king. But I love all of those things. I do. They're all good things, but they are not meant to be the center of our foundation. And when we put them there, perhaps without even noticing that, we experience what? Unrest, anxiety, division, because they promise things that they cannot deliver. They give us false hope and a false security. The church must be different. And it must be different because it is. It must have a different and a better solution because it does. And it's Jesus. That's what the story is about. We don't offer people Paul. We don't offer people uh, Luke. We don't offer people Ryan. We offer people Jesus. So how are we telling that story of grace here? How are we connecting that story to others around us who are looking for rest? How are we in our worship on Sunday saying, this is a place where anyone can find true rest that their heart is looking for in Christ? Whatever that is, let's be that. Let's be that as the people of God. And let's be that for each other, and let's be that for College Park, and let's be that for the surrounding area. 
This is the first point of application. Second, as we rest in Jesus in this gospel, then as he becomes more and more the center of all that we do and all that we are, right, we then have the wonderful, wonderful uh, privilege of reminding each other about that. All right, so we rest in Christ, and then we remind each other about our rest in Christ, about his gospel of grace to us. Because I don't know about you, uh, and this is something you're going to need to know about me, is I forget. I forget a lot. And I especially forget God's promises to me, and I allow fear right, to creep in and for it to be the louder voice over the voice of the gospel at times in my life. And if that's true for me, I'm, I'm assuming it's true for you too. And in those moments, I need to be reminded by God's people of God's love for me. I need to come in here and be reminded, come to the table, be reminded of God's love for me and his people. Of where rest is truly found, and that is Jesus. It could be argued that as a church, we do a lot of things, but few things are more important than remembering as God's people and reminding one another of that wonderful truth. That we are, as one pastor puts it, right, Far worse than we'll ever know, but more loved than we ever dare to dream. This is what our justification says. This is our new identity because of Christ. And where do we practice this remembering? Where do we get to do that? We get to do that here on Sunday mornings, absolutely. It's a big place where we remember. But we also get to do it around meals with one another. So hopefully that's happening. If COVID can get out of here. Maybe we're doing that uh, in Sunday school. Maybe we're doing that in service opportunities around the church. Maybe we're doing that in small group Bible studies, home groups, youth groups, all of the groups, right? You get the point. Where do we do this? We do this throughout life as God's people, reminding each other of this gospel of grace that we belong to. So let's be that. Not only a people who rest in Christ, but who remind each other of who we are in Christ as a church who has Jesus at the center of all that we do and are, at least the aim of all that we do and are. Lastly, as we learn to rest in Christ and remind one another of his grace to us, we then reflect him and his kingdom to the watching world in the way that we love one another and neighbor. And for some of us, this might be the best part, right? Uh, but you've got to take all three together. Uh, the way that we love and steward creation, not just our neighbors, but our creation as well. The way that we love God's law, the way that we love his people, which means we are a people who are quick to repent and seek forgiveness towards each other. The way that we think about our work even and those that we work with, right? The way that we navigate this broken world. As I said back in May when I was here with you all, the church is on offense, not on defense. It is on offense because of the resurrection, so how are we reflecting that reality in the way that we serve and we love our families, our friends, our neighbors, and we move into tough and broken places in order to be salt and light and to reflect the very gospel that we not only cherish, but we profess to rest in ourselves. The fact of the matter, because of the way God has created us, we are all reflecting something. We are all reflecting something. What is it? What is it as God's people? Could Wallace then be a place and continue to be that place where people see Jesus through us because he is at the center of all that we do and all that we are? To rest 
to remind and to reflect his goodness, his kingdom to a broken world that desperately needs Jesus, you might say, you might say, this is what it means to be the people of God. This is what it means to be the people of God. In a world that tells us to be 10,000 other things, let's be that. And let's do that together. Let's continue to be that for each other, for the people of College Park here and beyond my prayer for us. Let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that as we hear it, uh, we pray that you would allow it to seek deeply into our hearts as good soil as we ask that it would change us, that your word has the power to do that. It's the only power to change us. By your Holy Spirit, would you have mercy on us in that way. As we come to your table as we're reminded especially of what you have done to make this a reality, that you've given your life for us. Pray that we would meet you afresh, that our faith would be strengthened, that we'd know you more dearly this day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.